Welcome to RaiderCast, the Lara Croft and Tomb Raider podcast. We are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Angel of Darkness, and it is my great pleasure to host a very special guest. So, I am delighted to welcome the man, the writer, the world-building legend behind Lara's sixth outing, Murty Schofield. Welcome, Murty. How are you? Hi, thanks, Chris. Um, very pleased to be here. And um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Um, be interesting to see what I find out about what happened uh, leading to all this. <laughs> Delve into the archaeological memory banks and uh, see what comes up. <laughs> I am honoured to have you here and I can't wait to delve into some questions and to find out how the Angel of Darkness became the Angel of Darkness. But before we get there, I would like to know, very briefly, could you sum up, just for context, just for the episode and just for the, the viewers and listeners, your brief Raider journey? What did you know of Tomb Raider before you joined Core Design? Um, at the time that the, I think it was the, possibly the first game that came out, um, I was working at a company called Cygnosis in Chester. It was, um, it was in the office and people were playing it. And what would happen is would, people would gather around and, and, and watch. And I was part of the crowd that watched that. And I thought, oh, this, this is interesting. It's, a, it's a, an interesting concept. Wonderful, wonderful idea. And, and, and that was it, basically. And then I went off and I did other things and worked for a couple of other companies. And then, because of a friend of mine that I'd worked with at Cygnosis, I was asked by Core if I'd be interested in doing any dialogue for them. Um, for a game called Fighting Force, and I said, "Oh yes, I'd, I'd, yes, I'd be very interested in doing that," because uh, that was what I wanted to break into. So I went over to Corn, met the met the uh, met the brothers. They said, "Yeah, well, we can do this." Um, so we went ahead, and I, I worked on Fighting Force Two. I don't know; it must have been a year later or something like that. They got in touch with me again, and they said, "Oh, we'd like to talk to you about Tomb Raider," and I said, "Oh." oh Right, because, you know, by that time, Tumor Edward had just gone, you know, through the atmosphere. It had just gone crazy. And I thought, oh, that's a nice uh, a nice opportunity. And I thought they wanted more dialogue. And uh, had the interview, uh, had the chat with Adrian, and, and he was he was saying, well, we want to do something really new and exciting with Lara. We've, we've been doing, you know, these games for a while now. We, we, want, we want to take her in a different direction. Can you give us any ideas of what you might be able to do? Well, previous to that, I mean, I've been traveling in Turkey and I've been doing a lot of traveling around the world and I've been doing a lot of writing. And I'd written my own major novel at that point, The Cappadocian Angelus. And, and I've been also writing the first two novels of my six novel series, The Shadow Histories. So I had all these ideas at my fingertips. And I just did this massive um, on-the-spot splurge of all the ideas I could come up with that might be able to take there. They weren't specifically what became Angel of Darkness, uh, but they were, you know, they're in that realm. And uh, Adrian was sufficiently uh, impressed to say, "Well, uh, well, when can you start?" <laughs> so I said, "Well, last week. Um, when do you want me to start?" And that was it. But what I what I was doing in the meantime, I asked them for all the background material, any printed material whatsoever on all the Tomb Raider games that they'd done up to that point. 
So I had these big folders, big, big ring back folders. And I was just reading and reading and reading and looking at, you know, the tone and, and the, the, the style of dialogue and everything and really doing my, my homework. Because what I didn't want to do was sort of step over uh, any lines and transgress in, in what the sort of person that Lara was, you know, and I wanted to have full respect for what they'd established with Lara because she was fantastic. I mean, yeah, we all know that. And uh, she was a terrific heroine character. So I'd done all this research. And then when I came, I had pretty much uh, the ideas for Angel of Darkness that became Angel of Darkness. That's magnificent. It's such an exciting start as well. So a lot of interviews that you've given in the past, they've, to me, they felt quite locked in time because they've sort of been just about this period. Uh -huh. It's just been about what do you remember of the days working there? What was it like working on Lara? But for this Raidercast episode, I want to do something different and I want to approach the game from its past and from your own past, yes. because I'd like to talk to you about the before days, about your own adventures, about everything that ended up inspiring Lara's sixth adventure and her right. foray into the Shadow War. Yes. Here's what we're going to do. I have categorized a lot of the game's themes into into boxes, and I would like to just go through, we can investigate each one and find out how the Angel of Darkness became the Angel of Darkness. Right, right. So, the four categories that we're going to be talking about in this episode are the darkness, the mystery, the magic, and the geography. Ooh, lovely. And within each one, we have separate little subcategories. Which is going to really help <laughs> formalise my thinking, Chris. This is going to really help, yes, organise what it is. I'm, Because I'm, there's just so much to say about all of this, as you'll understand. It just, there's so, I, I was saying earlier, I, I just look back on all the material that's there, and I'm just, I am now overwhelmed with the sheer amount of material that there is there. Not, not this stuff I've done subsequently, but the stuff that was there for Angel of Darkness. And I was thinking, where did all this come from? What, what on earth did this come out of? And of course, I started to look into the background uh, of where I was going and so on. So yeah, th those categories are going to be very helpful for me to organize my responses. So thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's first of all, dive into the darkness. By the darkness, we would like to know, could you tell us about some of the things, whether fictional or historical, real people or places, books, films, you name it, that have inspired the themes within the game, such as the murder mystery, the femme fatale, and the noir aspect of the story? Well, um, yes, uh, I've, I've always been a, a voracious reader. Um, I, I watch many, many films. I, I've, ever since I've been a child, I've always been to the cinema, I watched lots of films, read lots of books, read lots of comics. I've been a comic fanatic all of my life. And a lot of the stuff that I was drawn to is, is very varied, really. But the dark side of the stuff that I was drawn to, I had a, I've just got a list here that I can refer to quickly. There, there are things like a thing called Blood Music by Greg Bear, which is uh, about a, an experiment in mutations that go wrong uh, and, and basically, you know, threaten the existence of the life on the planet. Uh, another writer is Chani Mieville, 
Pedido Street Station. Another one is Richard Morgan, Altered Carbon. I can I can go down the list, but there's a there's a lot of people who were writing very, very dark material. And I was also very in, affected by Philip Pullman. Um, I heard about his his trilogy. His literal dark materials. <laughs> dark materials. <laughs> yes, yes. And at that point, when I came across him, there were only two books out. And I, I read these voraciously. Oh, gosh, there's a third one coming. I couldn't wait. I get very excited, particularly by people who write well. You know, J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien, of course, uh, Alan Garner, Susan Cooper, The Dark is Rising, uh, Warren Ellis, wonderful dark comic stuff. So a lot of dark material there. But what, what drew me to the darkness was that heroic figures are great. I'm very drawn to heroic figures as well. But it's the darkness that, that you the darkness provides a, a background and a context for these heroes to shine and, and to, you know, meet challenges. And it and it, it's all to do with um, the hero's adventure, you know, the, the Joseph Campbell saga progression. Very, very powerful stuff that I was very influenced by his his writing, Joseph Campbell, um, seeing how the hero essentially has to die at some point he, or he has to go something which tests him so severely that he you know he pretty much has died he's either died physically or he's died to his own identity and but what could be so severe as to bring that about and i'd already been exploring all of this in my shadow histories mm, yes uh, um, stories very very dark material in that so some you know I've got whole whole encyclopedias of monsters and monstrosities and, and you know, terrible characters called the chameleons who, who are basically out to, you know, rule the world. It's light and darkness, light and darkness, the struggle the whole time. So I've always been drawn to that. And I do I do savour writing uh, dark, scary passages. And, you know, I was uh, hopefully going to get this into the uh, uh, Angel of Darkness and I was given the chance to do it. Basically... I was pretty much given free reign um, so long as I checked everything with the other members of the team. And they they were they would just oh right, well we've got somewhere to go now, <laughs> you know, we've got somewhere to go. And and the changes that I was making weren't to Lara, but to the world in which Lara existed. Because the thing that was left with me was as a true hero, a true Joseph Campbell hero, she had quote died. In the in the Egyptian tombs, she she she'd gone through that. Pro but we never found out what happened because the next game was a, a patchwork mix up and you know mix and match, um, because basically they, they they weren't quite sure what to do with it and where to go. And I thought, well, if I pick up at that point, at that very dark point where she has, you know, as I say in quotes, died, I can do some really interesting material with that. We we start with that as the dark note. That's the you know the the, the establishing uh, harmony of the story. And we can go, you know, as dark as we want with that. I've done a lot of reading about um, the ancient civilizations, particularly in Turkey. I'd spent quite a lot of time traveling in Turkey. Uh, you know, I'd come across the mention of the Nephilim and I thought, oh, you know, they're asking to be to be brought into this and running this past the team. And they were all very excited about it. Um, so, we, yeah, we went from there and started to uh, nail the ideas down. And by by December... Of that year 2000 it was pretty much nailed to the wall you can really sort of see when you approach something starting at such a dark point in lara's life why the decisions came about to 
to have the game feel so so noir and uh... yes yes Paris Paris noir that was what I wanted to establish and everybody was everybody was very keen about yes yes this is different this is different you know and uh, of course the the kind of scenarios we've got uh, were, were going to be very different from tombs and so on uh, but nobody seemed to have a problem with that uh, in fact they were you know they're very keen to be exploring the, this new territory. Um, the, the, the the criticisms that were aimed at it uh, in subsequent years about it not being Tomb Raider-ish, well, it isn't about reading tombs. It's about the Tomb Raider. You know, it's about the character. And and I hadn't changed anything essentially about her that hadn't been in the previous material. You know, somebody's died in a, in, a, in an Egyptian tomb. You're going to come out pretty much, you know, damaged and, and uh, needing to adjust. Yes. So I wanted to give her something to try and adjust to, but for it to go wrong. So um, I was always very interested in in terms of the heroine. I thought I thought Lara was was classic, but I was very interested in what I thought of as heroines for the day. These were the Harajuku girls, gothic um, heroines, Lolita and Hit Girl and Kickass. You know all these kind of River Tam in, in Firefly and um, Kim Pine in Scott Pilgrim. Sarah Connor in Terminator, you know, all these fantastic heroines dealing with very, very dark material and doing it brilliantly. Um, you know, they don't, they don't hold back. So, yeah, I was very excited to thinking, well, perhaps we can take Lara even further down this Harajuku route, this, this dark route of you know, exploring the dark side of her nature while she's trying to sort out her own very confused memories of, of what, what actually did happen to Von Croy in Paris. So, we can absolutely see as well the influences of those iconic sort of classic female characters on Lara's personality and her actions within the game as well. So that's really cool to know. That's really, really cool. Yeah, Buffy, Xena. Absolutely, yes. Well, let's move away from the darkness slightly. And oh, no, no, let's stay with the darkness. <laughs> well, there's still quite a bit of darkness in the next category, which is the mystery. So within the mystery category, please could you tell us a little bit of your inspirations behind the themes of conspiracy, secret societies, and the overall arcing shadow war that takes place in the mists of time and history that present themselves within the game? Right, right. Well, I've, I've, I've say, been, always been a voracious reader. Um, and one of the things that had fascinated me had been always been the fact that we don't actually know really what goes on in, in a lot of the recorded history throughout, throughout, throughout time. You know, we get versions of the history and there was it, it, it was obvious that there were always other stories behind the stories that we were presented as the, the factual records. So, um, so was there anybody behind that? Well, there are lots of conspiracy theories of, of, of who might have been behind that, Kabbalists and, and, and so on. There are models of that right throughout history. Um, so I thought, well, 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 we'll take that the idea that there are people pulling the strings in the shadows but actually more than that, if people are pulling the strings for dark purposes, there will be people 
fighting for the light side as well. So there will be wars, there'll be struggles, there'll be wars going on, and there may be struggles going on and wars going on that we're not aware of because they're so underground, they're so deeply underground. Um, and we only get occasionally these, these, these dark struggles, as I call them, the shadow histories, these dark struggles will erupt into the, into the, the light of day in the natural world with oh what the heck's going on there so you know that's something something some terrible war so there's been a slaughter or there's been something going on and, and but there's no real and we we get these these um simplified explanations of what's been going on what i was interested in was the idea of of beings human or otherwise uh, who guide or protect an evolving human race but also the dark unexplained aspects of what it is they're combating, what they're protecting and guiding the, the human race from, what are they protecting them from? So obviously there were, there'd be secret societies and groups. Um, there'd, be, there'd be groups and cabals, coteries of, of people. And, and what I was looking for was a, a really superlative example of something that would be a dark force that had been there from the beginnings of history. I didn't have to look far because I already, you know, I'd be coming across mention of the Nephilim. I was reading books called uh, The Holy Blood, The Holy Grail, you know, the Enoch, the Gospels, uh, From the Ashes of Angels, and a wonderful book that I, I, I read a long time ago called The Morning of the Magicians. Um, fantastic conspiracy uh, theory some of them were sort of novels, but some of them were, were, were just uh, a recounting of history from a different perspective, from a dark perspective, from the perspective of the fact that things have been going on in the shadows. So I found out as much as I could about the what was recorded about the Nephilim, which, which wasn't uh, an awful lot um, because it was all prehistory. And I thought, right, just bring them into the story in a form that we can make use of them. But what I didn't want was giant villains fighting their way uh, across the landscape. I thought, no, it's, it, we've got to make this multi-layered. We've got to make this mysterious. We've got to make this uh, secretive. So I used a lot of the information that I'd gathered from my own shadow history stories um, and started to put the, the Nephilim in as an influence. Um, so if they, they'd existed for a long time, what I needed was a really bad character. And, and the answer to that was Eckhart, um, an alchemist, you know, a person dabbling in, in the dark side of things who was prepared to do anything for his own advancement. So worked out the, the, the fact that he had gone to Cappadocia looking for traces of the, these Nephilim races and something happened to them there. And, he, you know, he met various characters who presented themselves as Nephilim, although they weren't. They were representatives of the Nephilim because there weren't many Nephilim left at that time because the Nephilim had, had been offshoots of breeding between angels and human beings. They were basically pulverized by by humans who felt threatened by them so they were persecuted and wiped out and so on which is why they went underground in the cities oh that's that's what happened in our story so um all this was coming together very nicely what i had to do was come up with a backstory for um eckhart i mean very mysterious character in his own way and and to be honest i've never had a problem coming up with ideas my, my, my I've, I've expressed this before that my difficulty is trying to control this stampede of horses which is how the ideas feel they just ideas just cascade constantly through my head and um, all the time and 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 they 
the, the, the challenge, the, the skill, the difficulty is organizing into something which becomes believable and coherent and actually uh, sequential so I can tell a story with it. So I was I was writing down, scribbling down ideas on, on these big A4 pages and, and putting these down. And then I was writing them in more organized note form that I could take into the team and show the team. So this is what I've got. These, you know, these Nephilim, they live over here and this is Eckhart and he's in Europe and he's an alchemist. And he, he, so I could show them in, in almost diagrammatical form what I had in mind because nobody could cope with the stampeding horses. I mean, I had enough trouble myself trying to, you know, stay in the saddle. Um, <laughs> so that was the way that was the way we did it. And, I, and I, I, I sort of drip fed the ideas of these. But all the time in the background, I was writing these these backstories and these underlying layers of history and the strata of ancient archaeological meaning to everything. So we have touched on the darkness itself and the mystery aspects and i would like to dive into one of my personal favorite aspects of the whole story being alchemy the dark arts and nephilim to talk about the magic we've touched a little bit on on the alchemy but if there's a lot more we can talk about in terms of the nephilim and the dark arts as well let's go for it well, I'd, I'd always been interested in the in the history of science, um, you know, how science developed from the early days of, of there were no such things as scientists. There were just people doing experiments and stuff. And it, it became formalized into a discipline which we now call alchemy and understand as alchemy. Uh, and the book I mentioned just briefly before, The Morning of the Magicians, and that was talking about again about conspiracies and so on. And, and but basically, what they were saying was a lot of the a lot of the the mystery of alchemy and science and everything is actually out in the open. It's just that we aren't trained. We don't have the understanding of the eyes and the ears. We don't. We're not trained to recognise the signs that are out there. Um, and they were going into uh, in quite detail into a lot of what alchemy involved which of course, some of the things that the alchemists were attempting to do, we now can do with our you know, highly advanced science. But what they were, uh, what the alchemists were trying to do was bring about personal transformation. This, this thing of producing gold from lead, it was the sort of thing that you say, oh, oh what are you doing? Oh, I'm producing gold from lead. You know, it's like the banner thing that you, you can talk about. It gets people interested. You might get sponsors then. You might get people, you know, supporting you, giving you money, funding your research. <laughs> but the, the actual search of the alchemist was for personal transformation. And what they were looking for, they were looking for um, an elixir of transformation. And the elixir would was believed to what it would do would be prolong active life, prolong life. Um, and I was very, I was always very intrigued uh, about this idea of an elixir, life prolonging something, a substance or a process or, or whatever. And it may have been that this whole thing of transforming lead into gold was just a sort of uh, an analogy you know, there's, there's no evidence that anybody ever actually did, but there was they were constantly, you know, attempting to do it. And also the fact that they were probably stuck in in um, enclosed spaces in cellars and there were all these sulfuric acid and fumes and all sorts. You know, they were probably having all sorts of hallucinations. And 
<laughs> crawling up the wall and say, I'm transformed, I'm transformed. Yeah, a lot of Eckhart's mannerisms make a lot more sense when you think he's just <laughs> high on fumes. <laughs> he's spent too long breathing in sulfuric acid. <laughs> and, 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 you know, gold fumes and stuff. And of course, tied up with all of this was the other, uh, the dark side of it, which was uh, Satan worship, uh, you know, uh, trying to evoke the devil or bring up demons and so on. So it it all got, you know, tumbled around and mixed up. And I don't know how sincere people were in trying to keep the elements clear, but, you know, the, the more... Um, showmanship you can you can show and operate in these things the, the more you get attention from the people who could become your sponsors and there were people there was a, I can't remember any of the names offhand but there were there was a, a royal family in Prague who were funding uh, alchemists and, and John D was one of the people who went over and, and I think I'm getting my facts right on this he, he was one of the people who went over to Prague um, and was was uh, was sponsored because he came back to Elizabethan England uh, and became the alchemist of his day, John D. And I thought, well, there's another character I can use. And so, right, actually, John D. I don't want to use a real historical character in this game, but I can certainly base Eckhart on some version of John D. One who's been in the fumes a bit too long, and and you know, <laughs> and gets these delusions of grandeur and thinks he's going to be the the golden lion of the the prophecies and so on. And he has to get banged up because he's you know gets out of order. Um, however, I wanted to use as much real world material, historical, scientific. Um, you know, everything that I could refer, geographic, anything that was real in the world that I could use, I wanted to use it and refer to it. So people reading this, because, oh, right, okay, oh, there is a place called Cappadocia. Oh, my goodness, there are these underground cities. Oh, there is a place in, in Prague called, you know, the Strahoven. You know, um, they may not be quite what we're doing with them, but you can go and, you know, and go visit these places, as you well know. <laughs> uh, let's dive a little bit into the the aspect of the dark arts, what inspired the sort of art history aspect of the story in terms of the obscura paintings and things like that? Well, uh, again, I was looking at the idea of uh, if, if people um, working in alchemy, having to do it very secretly, they would have to keep records. They would, they would have to keep a track of what they were doing. They were methodical. They were, they were scientific in their way and they would keep records of all the experiments they're doing. So they would mix so much sulfuric acid with so much of this and saltpeter and so on. But they would have to keep track, uh, records of what they were doing to be able to repeat any process which seemed to show any promise uh, of fulfillment. So uh, I thought, well, how would they do this? They wouldn't just have notes lying around. A, they'd write in script. I mean, John Dee wrote in his own angelic script, which nobody could decipher. You know, he's a good example of that. Um, so they would be, be they would be hiding the results of their findings uh, in in various forms. So what would an interesting form would be? Well, let's say you were doing uh, you did some allegorical pictures. You know, so the, the, the like with biblical reference. So if you knew how to interpret the image, the, the different elements of the of the images on the pictures you would you would be able to read it like a notebook 
of the processes that they'd gone through. And I thought, right, so it had these painting, it had these, these ideas for sketches and images and ideas. And contemporaries of his were, at the time, I think uh, somebody, de Gruas, I, I created a character called de Gruas, who was a, um, a devil worshipper. And, and he, would, he would, you know, they'd, they'd be having these discussions, not giving away too much of their own findings, but, you know, trying to, to see, well, you know, how much progress have you made in this? And, and of course, what I decided Eckhart needed to do was to, to paint some pictures and, and get some pictures done, which would be a record of his own process. Of course, later on, when he became the Golden Lion in his mind, when he became the Golden Lion, these would be the things that would be up in the temple of Eckhart. You know, the, these, were the, these would be the panels that people would worship and, and so on. But even further than that, what he needed to do was hide some of the results that he'd found. Um, and, and he might have been, not have been able to purify gold, but he was able to purify... Well, he, he, was, he would have been able to purify gold, but he wouldn't have been able to transform it from lead, so let's say. But he would also be able to, trans, to, to purify other elements. And he could get these purified elements, which in, in the way his mind worked, he knew he would be able to use to make other transformations. So he had elements that he uh, purified potassium, purified copper, and so on, five elements that he used. And he thought, I will, I will hide symbols, I will secrete symbols with these pure elements in the paintings. They were, they were like the, um, the Russian uh, icons you know, on, on wooden boards, so he could hide them in there and then uh, paint over them. So that was that was what he was doing with those. That was the idea behind that, because I knew at, at, at the, the culmination of all this, all this stuff that he'd done uh, needed to be brought together where, when, when Lara enters the picture. And these would be combined in some in some interesting way to create an artifact or a series of artifacts. It actually became one artifact that would be usable. And of course, Lara being Lara, she would be able to turn the tables and use the artifact to destroy him and, 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 and so on. So that was, that was my thinking of that. Let's move on to the Nephilim. What first inspired you about the Nephilim? Why have they sort of stuck as this sort of big theme across your work, not just Tomb Raider, but in your past as well? When I was traveling, particularly in Turkey, there's other places as, as well, in, in, in southern France and so on, I was always interested in the, the suppression of the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar had, had been effective in, in taking the, the Christian faith to all different parts of the world. But when they met the match in, in Turkey, in Cappadocia, in Anatolia, and, and I was interested in w- what it would be that would stop them. You know, I had, I'd, I'd come across the idea of the Nephilim, the concept of the Nephilim, and I thought, well, what, what would they be? So I did the research into what they seemed to have been, like the offspring of, of the breeding between angels and humans. Okay, so they were, they were a sort of a hybrid but what would it be about them that I could use in the story? Because that's always the question, how can I use this? Uh, and they just seem to me to be the ultimate in the shadowy figures behind everything. And inevitably, because they would have powers that they would have inherited from their angelic genetic material, they would have powers, one of which I decided, well, if it was a sort of shapeshifter capacity that they had, they could appear as humans and move amongst humans unrecognized. 
So they could go and they could, you know, they could go and visit Eckhart while he was working in his laboratory and just keep an eye on him. It might it might appear as another alchemist or or somebody, you know, and just uh, yeah. And I developed that theme quite a bit further in, in subsequent writing. Um, but just keep an eye on Eckhart, see what he was doing, and realizing actually he's going bad. <laughs> you know, he, he's actually he, he's he's on too many fumes, so uh, he's not using the filters. So he needs to be locked up. And then the looks very tart is. Um, you know who were um, always combating every element of anything that wasn't Christian there was a the the Lux Veritatis had uh, their own fanatics the Black Legion they they had their own fanatics who would go and they would just loot destroy and repress everything that they could find particularly in, in Cappadocia uh, and they looted the um, the Periap shards, which were actually a Nephilim artifact. Uh, and they 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 looted all sorts of other material, including elements of ferulium that they then were able to turn into the Chirigai and so on. Um, so um, the Nephili obviously had to go underground, and uh, literally <laughs> as well as uh, figuratively, they'd have to go underground. So um, the Nephilim were were ideal in that, in that they didn't need to make an appearance at all in the story as Nephilim but if I could have somebody who was able to shapeshift and could appear as various characters that we've already met or that we meet in different stages in the game and the question arises oh levels of mystery was that the real Bouchard or was that somebody you know shapeshifting his Bouchard and as it turns out there were a number of occasions where that was very useful for the story um um, people were saying, "Oh, this is getting needlessly complicated." Said, no, no, people will love this. They'll love it. They'll they'll dig into it, and they'll you know, and and you know, subsequently that's been proved to be the case. Very, very true. Yeah, yeah, I'll say. <laughs> the Nephilim are present in in the in the person of Corel, but not as a Nephilim, but as a, a member of the Cabal. He's just you know an ordinary dude, member of the an ordinary nasty ultra villain as a member of the Cabal. He's, he's manipulating things though, because he knows that Lara is an unusual character, um, and he's, he's he realised that she would be very useful in precipitating certain climaxes and activities in Paris, and, and so on. So she, she's an element for change. She's an element for change. She's she's well known in in the work that she does, but Carell can see what she is with different eyes. He sees that she's actually a very useful element to have in the story. Um, so we, we, and the only other, the only other Nephilim that we get to see is the um, the one that turns up in the the sarcophagi, the sleeper, and that was something I, I was very excited at when I was travelling in Turkey. I'd read about the um, the Yedi Uyunla, the, the the sleeper, the seven sleepers. There's a cave that I went to went to see. And you, you can't see it. You can go down in the cave, but there's, there's actually nothing. There's no sarcophagus or anything to see there. But that's the site of the, the seven sleepers. And I thought, hmm, the seven sleepers, the Nephilim sleepers, right. You know, and started to, you know, you to, to uh, ad adopt that idea. So how can we bring what does Eckhart, i.e. Carell, what does Eckhart want to do? Because he's being guided by, what does he want to do? He wants to revive the Nephilim race and bring them back to life. Because uh, Eckhart, one of the missions he was given when he came back from uh, Anatolia back in the 1400s, I think it was, wasn't it? Um, he he was told to set up uh, 
breeding communities, breeding programs. Well, they were just communities, but they were actually being very specially monitored to breed and produce humans who would be fit to breed with the revived Nephilim. Um, and, and my contention is that um, both Curtis and Lara are actually a long term, many generations removed product of some of those that genetic material. But anyway, Kurt, so Eckhart was, was producing these, these, these people. Uh, I do like that concept. If we had to sort of follow it through to its logical conclusion, it would be like, ah, so that kind of explains why Lara can be shot loads of times or can jump about. <laughs> 50 feet or do any of these other really incredible superhuman feats it's like ah and then of course you have curtis and curtis's abilities and it would be natural that yes. they would stem from some yes. higher source it's very cool very very cool yes yes because i was always interested in the story behind the story behind the story behind the story behind the story and you get far enough back and you think all this stuff is 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 mythologized already it's there it's, it's using and adapting and creating something new out of existing material, existing locations, existing concepts, existing theories, and putting it together in a way which works and becomes its own thing. That, that's, that's my belief. We are going to move on to the geography aspect. You've spoken a little bit about Paris and the sort of theme of it being like a sort of Paris noir. And you've touched a lot on Cappadocia and your experiences there and how they've inspired the, the story as it became. Can you tell us a little bit about why Kriegler Castle in Germany and that influence? Right. I, I wanted somewhere um, I wanted somewhere that would be visually very interesting. Um, and and I, I, I went looking at images of, of castles um, and I wanted them on the on, on the German border. So they were on the edge of what was the German Empire, as it was in World War Two, uh, because a lot of the ideas have come from research and reading. But I sometimes have the I used to have these very, very vivid dreams where I wake up with an episode pretty much complete in my head. And one of the ones I woke up was was this was this allied bombing raid which is going to um, yeah, bomb the hell out of the, 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 the Nazi forces. But something is controlling what's going on there. There's something, there's a dark force, again, controlling what's happening with the Allied forces and the Allied bombs. And, and the, they, the map reading goes wrong and they end up bombing this castle. Why do they end up bombing this castle? Well, that's because that's Eckhart. That's where Eckhart is. So that's, you know, that would be great. So you need a really good looking castle. Um, and I don't know whether it had lots of subterranean levels, but in our story it did. Um, and that's where Eckhart is is confined down in the lower levels of that. Um, so it's the you know it's a it's basically a German base, um, and it's being it's being uh, the custodians of the of Eckhart are actually it looks very Tartist uh, members. Uh, you know that's all been been recorded before, so it all seemed to fit together very very well, and and in my mind the, the, I'd actually written this um, short FMV this 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 in game uh, video, uh, it never got shot, but it was it was the the, the bombers coming over and it was like coordinates and you can just about hear what they're saying, but behind the eyes of one of the pilots there's this red gleam. 
so he's he's been taken over and he's feeding them the wrong coordinates because he's being controlled by somebody else uh, so they you know they, they go and then you, you you go down and then you go into the castle and you see what's going on down there and and, and the custodians um the the Heisturm family are going crazy because the place is being bombed and, and you know it threatens to release Eckhart and then you cut back to the bombers again then you cut back so there was this whole scene scenario that I'd written that never never made it I mean, it's a, you know it's a, you can see it online now yeah I've seen I've read the script and I've seen um the storyboard as well for that cutscene, and I yes. If I ever get the money one day, I will make that. I will do oh, that live action. Oh. I will make it because it's just it's imprinted on my mind because it's such a cool story, so cool. I would love to see that. And, that, and that's that's why you see Eckhart confined, you know, in in, in in whatever way anybody cares to visualize that and create that. And and, and you've got the periaps which are restraining him, and you know, and all that stuff. It just it's it. It's like a pivotal moment on a within the mythology of the game. It's so so cool. It's fantastic. But of course, we had to keep referring back to that because that was the that, you know that was the key moment when Eckhart gets released, and and then of course from then on he, he you know he takes up a base in in Prague and and uh, Paris and starts all these his nefarious doings. So. Thank you for telling us about some of the the inspirations behind these things. There's been a lot of things that I have no idea about, so it's been really cool to learn. Uh, and I said at the beginning that I didn't want to just sort of fixate on the before. I do want to talk about some of the stuff that's happened since. So let's go about 15 years after the release of the game, and you worked on a wealth of supplemental material. Yes. Um, for example, the Curtis Trent Journal and El Hawa. So yeah. there was also there's a lot of work. And Janice. And Janice. And yeah. Everyone's favourite Janice. All of this stuff is now available on your website. So how did this all come about, like since release? How has that sort of reignited the spark of inspiration for you? Well, to, to go over an an old story, um, after the, the game was released, it, it, it was not very well received. Uh, in fact it was it was panned. Uh, pretty universally not not because i mean the the um the locations were beautifully done the music was fantastic um the story was good i felt the story was fantastic but yeah the story was good you'll find many many people who agree agree <laughs> um but i i it was just uh, it was just terrible it was just a, a terrible disappointment i thought that was going to be my calling card to hollywood um and I had to try and find another way to get to Hollywood. Um, so I just I just went into into hermit mode and I just concentrated on my own projects, then shadow histories and everything else. Uh, but then after about three or four years, it began it began to emerge that people were finding the value in, in Angel of Darkness and making allowances for the fact that it had been released before it was completely ready. So what is there in there? And I thought, well, it's good that people are interested enough to go back and make the effort to do that because there's no reason why people should do, you know, there's no, there's no benefit for them except their own interest. My hope with all the work that I've done, I've, I've, my hope is always that I've wanted to inspire people 
to explore their own creativity and have lots of fun doing it, as much fun as possible, and share the creativity with as many people as possible. Because there's something very special about bringing something into the world which didn't exist before, and then sharing it with other creative minds and like-minded people and, and seeing them take off. And what was coming to, to my notice was that people were going back to the Angel of Darkness elements and doing their own versions of it, particularly taking elements of, of what Curtis could have done and, you know, what Lara could have done afterwards. And I thought, oh, people, were, people are interested in this. This is, a, this is, people are beginning to see what I put into it. And it was very affirming for me. And then there was more of that. And I, I sort of got involved with it a little bit, but was basically keeping my distance because I'm always aware that if, if 20 people love what you've done, there'll be 20 people who hate it and, and, and you know, want to want to rip it apart and troll it and everything else. Uh, but then I was getting communications from people who were genuinely interested, including somebody called Phoenix Uruk High, who contacted me in 2007 um, and was, was very got some very interesting communication going with him, and it turned out to be you. It did. It turned out to be me. <laughs> Back in two thousand and seven, you were the very, you were the very first person to who was able to contact me directly and enthuse about it. And I thought, oh, this is this is really marvelous. Um, you know, obviously, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to you know be flattering, over flattering here, but somebody who's intelligent enough to see what was in there. And, and obviously, was a, you were a creative person in your own right, and you were you were producing, I don't you producing um, the videos back then as well. And then I got I got contacted by a group called the Curtis Trent Estrogen Brigade, uh, who were very <laughs> sincere in what they were doing. They, they were very respectful. So I was exchanging with them. And then through various other people, it, I began to make more contact. Uh, and then I met a whole bunch of people who were clearly very sincere in their in their uh, enjoyment of it and and it just brought back the thrill of creating a world and having it seen and appreciated something coming to life in my hands and 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 share it and then seeing other people's work coming back uh, reflecting that I, I i'm not going to say very much about this but i just want to say for any angel angel of darkness fans who are out there watching this and there must be at least two or three um there's going to be a very very special Angel of Darkness uh, event towards the end of the year. And I, I'm not going to say anything more about it. I'm not going to say where it is, uh, but it will be towards the end of the year, sometime before Christmas or so. And it's going to be really, really special. There's a lot of people working on ideas for that right now. And I just want to drop that in. So, yeah. That's a nice little teaser. And there will be teasers. There will be teasers and more information coming. So, Speaking of teasers, uh, let's stay sort of present day. Back in the latest Derby event, uh, you briefly came on stage and you mentioned something, a little hint, that perhaps you weren't done with Curtis's character. Is there anything that you can tell us about what we can perhaps expect from that? What were, you, what were you implying? To a very, very large extent, I, I created Curtis, and I, I feel a great deal of ownership about Curtis. Um, and I was always very, very interested in what might be his background story. So I wrote a lot of that. I wrote a lot of the background story. And then I thought a good way of, of getting into Curtis's mind is to do the Curtis Trent journal. 
So I did the Curtis Strength Journal. That enabled me to really delve into all the influences that would have been exerted on, on Curtis, including the very important one of him running away and, and joining the French Foreign Legion and, and the, the things that would happen there. So I thought, yeah, there's, there's such a lot to, to get into there. Wouldn't it be interesting if I could just go back and, and fill in the gaps between when he left the, the, the family fold of the Luxray Tartis, joined the Foreign Legion, had the adventures that he had in the Foreign Legion, many of which were really weird anyway, and got, you know, led to him being called uh, Demon Hunter and, and you know, <laughs> all the rest of it. Um, but then he, what happened then? I mean, he, he served five years, got his French citizenship, goes back to, where would he go? Goes back to Europe, Scandinavia, starts to travel around the world, goes back to America to see his his, uh, his tribal family, his Navajo family, his mother and so on. And what does he do? Where does he go? What, what, what happens in all that meantime? So then I started to jot ideas and then I just couldn't stop it. The horses were galloping then. Um, and I mentioned this at um, in brief at Derby last year. And I'd already started thinking about it quite seriously. And I, you know, I started, I started plotting out all sorts of timelines and flow charts and all sorts of stuff. Wow. Um, so so the, at the moment, there's a, a huge amount of material um, amassed and, 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 and in a rough kind of shape. Some of it's in pretty good shape. What I thought I'd, I'd be able to do would be get it ready for May. Well, we've got to May and, and, and there's been COVID and all sorts of... Uh, what's going to happen is I'm going to complete this thing called the Curtis, the Renegade Years. And it, it covers the time from when he, he left to join, it left and joined the French Foreign Legion. And then what were the elements that brought him to the point where he suddenly turns up in Paris. What brings him to Paris? What are the what are the story elements and the character conflicts he's had that bring him to Paris? So that he runs into this this um, Amazon in Denim, uh, just just finding out what's going on there, and and then after that, you know, <clears throat> who knows? Hey, I've, I've spoken to Eric about this, who did the Curtis voice, for those who don't know. <laughs> And uh, he and I have stayed very close after we did the recordings for Angel of Darkness. We've become very firm friends. In fact, Eric and his production company are helping to get the Shadow Histories uh, proposed as a TV series. You're just, you know, with a lot of work going on for that as well. But talk, spoken to Eric about this. Because Eric is very pleased to do a, a, anything to help out. Oh, my goodness. I'd love to see... We've got a very good video, a beautiful video of El Hawa with music by Dean yes. and uh, art by Adeka, uh, you know, Jasmine, and, and, and readings by Janelle and Ash Capriella for, as, uh, and, and Tina. As, you know, they produced it themselves. It's a beautiful piece. Of, I'd love to see something like that for the Janice material. And I'd like to see the animated version of the, the Curtis Trent Journal. Now, <laughs> what I would really love to see at some point, if I'm around long enough, would be um, to see the Curtis story, the renegade years done as a, um, I don't know, as, as a, a game section or a, a video or something, because there's so many really great visual things in it, including the fact that when Lara was rescued by Putai in the desert, Curtis had been in the same sort of region, not exactly the same regions, but the same uh, similar parts of North Africa. And he was traveling around. Um, and it's very clear to me 
that uh, Curtis will have run into Putai at least on one occasion. He wouldn't know who she was. He wouldn't be able to, but he has these very hypersensitive, what I call his wolf sense, mm, yeah. where he knows when somebody is special, you know, somebody is, is, is on a different vibration from normal people. And he runs into Putai and has an exchange with her. And he just, he just thinks, whoa, I, I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of this person. She looks like an, you know, a late middle-aged woman and, 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 oh, but there's something about her. And he, he's, he's, his wolf senses are going off like mad. His Navajo wolf senses. And, and, and then he, you know, you know, I, I'll describe the event that happened there in, in the, uh, the renegade years. Yes. But then of course, Curtis leaves the Legion travels around Scandinavia and Europe and Americans and he encounters somebody very similar what the heck's going on so there's all these lovely moments coming together and these things coming together and Curtis also runs into the guy who was simply called the assassin Emmett Bruff in the in the Angel of Dawn he, he runs into him a couple of times he, he ran into him when he was young and living in the the Chaco Canyon in America but then he runs into him again in Europe, gives him a good thrubbing, which is why the, the assassin isn't on his top form and Lara can take care of him and bump him off. <laughs> Actually, I'm now picturing just some sort of conversation between Lara and Curtis in the future where he's, he's fine and she's fine, but he's just slightly knocked off that, you know, she's, she's bumped off the cleaner and Eckhart and yeah. Carell. <laughs> and it's like... He was like, these are all these were all my fights. Where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I owed them some serious harm and you've you've sort of yeah. Well it, it was my game. <laughs> She's just like, oh sorry. <laughs> yeah, oh, I've I've got loads of extra dialogue between Lara and, and Curtis that uh, you know, just them having a go at each other. I'd love to hear that performance yes. And Eric has said he'll do stuff like this. But I'm also writing a, a disc slinger's lament, um, a, a soldier's lament, which is going to be a song for Curtis, and, and Eric has said he'll perform it. Wow, and, uh, that's amazing! I want it to be in the same style of Eric's. You know, Eric sings and, and has yeah. performed. Mm-hmm. He's, he's done a track called "All This World," and it's so haunting. It's absolutely gorgeous. All this world, and I, I thought, if I can get get the words right, and Eric performs it and writes the music, it would just be a lament for a, a, a soldier, lament for a the life of a demon slayer. Yeah, for a demon slayer. Yeah, wow. yeah. Uh, just a very, very, very sad song. So anyway, lots of exciting stuff lined up there, but um, because the one person who is just crying out for uh, her story to be told is Hutai. Um, <laughs> Is this, uh, is this, uh, oh, well, when I'm no, done with Curtis, no, uh... no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even dropping a hint, but Patai's story needs to be told. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns, it turns out, of course, that Patai is part of, uh, like a female order, um, uh, like a secret female order of people who are, again, looking after the, the progression and the development of the human race. And, you know, part of her mission is to be keeping an eye over for people who are uh, special, you know, have, have got genetic promise and, 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 and can actually be very useful in the shadow war, which is continually going on. And, and um, you know, Putaya has got her eye on, on Lara, of course, she's saved her. And she's got her eye on Curtis as well. 
But she also knows uh, Curtis's mother, who is a shaman in her own way for oh. for the for the Navajo tribe. I mean, she brought Curtis up as a, a trainee, looks very artist, and brought up his half brother Chingacho Redhand. So he's got his half brother who's brought up in the Navajo tradition which is similar to in training to the, the looks right artist. So there's all sort of, there's all those things to explore. I don't know whether this, this um, feminine order have conventions and they all get together and say, Oh, you're my best mate. You like are. Derby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yes, they're, they're part of this, this, this feminine order as well. And what they were hoping to do, of course, was to recruit Morgau. Again, she's one of these promising people. But of course, a lot of this is dealt with in, in, in Jenny Millward's follow-on uh, novelization stories. Oh yes. Um, we get we get to see uh, we get to see what would have happened had the Angel of Darkness story been able to continue. And Jenny has been I don't know what the correct tense is for this, but there are in existence at some level two more volumes. <laughs> which will be coming out. And we found out what happens with Curtis and Lara and Morgau and loads of other people who were left sort of hanging in limbo. And, and you know, that's going to be a hell of a read. And the, the Angel of Darkness novelization has been out for a long time and she's done an audio version of it, which is super Spectacular. And she, she voices Lara, of course, and, and various other people. But Adam Coover, who is, uh, you know, the voice extraordinaire, Eric says, oh, Eric says, oh, yeah, Adam does me better than me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know? And Adam's done, you know, so many voices for this audio version of, of Jenny's Angel of Darkness. So, you know, if, if, if people can check that out, you're in for a real treat. So, Murty, we have gone over the inspirations for the game. We have touched on some of the present projects and some of the ones in recent history. The supplemental materials for the characters that you have expanded upon since the game's release. And I would highly recommend everyone go over to MurtyScofield.com and just delve into the absolute treasure trove archive that you can find there because... Sometimes I will find myself just going on there just to see if I can just find a little bit of information and then like an hour later I'm still going through files like, oh yeah, because then this character was linked to this timeline. It is never ending. It is fantastic and everyone will love that. So thank you so much, Murti, for taking the time to speak to us today. It's been an honour speaking to you. Well, can, can I also just very briefly say, uh, can I just very briefly say thank you to everybody who built the website and and put did the trailers for it yourself uh, and uh, and and jenny and tina and lara titova and dean for the music and everybody put so much love and effort into that website um and i'm just so so eternally appreciative for that um and it continues and it will continue to grow and, and there'll be more material going on there all the time so it is such a wonderful resource of everything that is your work it's so good thank you so much murty this has been a fantastic chat i hope you've had a great time okay my pleasure i've really enjoyed it thanks chris thanks a lot and uh, yeah we'll speak again soon